Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Desgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj Show. So this is definitely not only a medical show. It's a show about being yourself. It's a show about every single aspect of medicine. It's a show about wellness. It's a show about, hey, I want to give you role models that are going to be, I'm going to get a chance to interview so you can be like, you know what? I want to be like him or her. And with that being said, because it's my show and my podcast, I'm inviting the coolest, nicest, hippest people in the whole world. And that's why today I have Dr. Rosie Kahn. And before I just go straight for an introduction, I always have something prepared to say to kind of make them blush while I'm reading it, you know? So Dr. Kahn is a critical care medicine physician currently serving in the COVID ICU and is an assistant professor of clinical medicine at Western University College of Osteopathic Medicine. Dr. Khan completed her undergraduate degree at the University of Southern California in 2004. Go Trojans! Completed her medical degree at Truro University College of Osteopathic Medicine in 2008. Completed an internal medicine residency at Arrowhead Regional Medical Center in 2011. And then completed a critical care fellowship at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in 2013. Eventually returning to join USC again as faculty in 2016. And now, since 2017, been hanging out at Western University. In addition to clinical interest in critical care, ultrasound, and neurocritical care, Dr. Khan also has a special interest in helping students get into medical school despite low scores. She offers an online course called the Future Doctor Formula, where she provides students guidance into the medical school application process, often referred to simply as the female doc, her social media handle on Instagram. Dr. Khan also broadcasts many medical educational video snippets, encouraging students on their pre-med journey. With that being said, Rosie, Dr. Khan, whatever you like to be called, my best friend, how are you doing today? Oh my God, Raj, you definitely did make me blush, that's for sure. <laughs> and so detailed, but yeah, basically we're besties. That's, that's the majority of how I would describe us. <laughs> well, for those who don't know, you know, um, how did she become my friend when she had her small snippet here at the University of Southern California the second time when she worked as an attending? She was just awesome to work with. She always made me smile every day. And it was actually her non-medical parts of her personality that uh, really just make her stand out to me. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So Rosie, let me start off with the get to know you questions, even though I do know you, but my audience wants to know you. So kind of generic, but let's start off with, hey, where were you born and where did you go to college? And as far as college, when did you know that, hey, I want to be a doctor? I was born and raised in California, and my parents immigrated here from India and Pakistan. Yes. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm a first generation, 
Pakistani, Indo or Indo-Pak American. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I went to University of Southern California, USC for undergrad. And it was very difficult for me to get into medical school, but I had always known that I wanted to be a doctor since I was little. And of course, when you're like five years old and you tell aunties and uncles, I want to be a doctor, you get a lot of positive reinforcement and that never left me. So I just continued on this path and I knew I, I, this was the only thing I wanted to do. There was no other career path that I thought of that I could see myself doing. And so as a pre-med, even though I had terrible scores, they were so embarrassing. Um, But I finally, I just kept at it. And I think sort of like what you said, Raj, is one of the reasons why I gravitated towards you at work when we were together at Keck is because we're just more personable and the bedside manner is there and the empathy and compassion and all of the other things that you don't see when it comes to things like scores, like test taking and things like that. And so I think that's the piece that makes really great physicians and really great colleagues is, is all of that. And so I found a way to weasel my way into med school, but I think, <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I, I overcame my scores, but that was sort of my pre-med journey in a nutshell. So let me ask you this. I'll go out of order with the questions. So was it because you had a little challenge to get into med school? Why now you are a big advocate for helping medical students, pre-med students, pre-med students in their journey? Yeah. So I actually, I I had a 2.9 science GPA. I don't know if we've actually ever talked about this, but I had a 2.9 science GPA and, um, I got a 22 on my MCATs too. <laughs> and I don't know if you remember MCATs, but when we took them, it was in a scale, on a scale, the highest you could get was a 45. And so a 22 was 32nd percentile. It was terrible. And everyone, even my pre-med advisor told me I wasn't going to get into school. But I think the challenge is, is that a lot of people of color, first-generation kids, immigrants, we don't have guidance, even though we have a lot of love at home. You know, our parents have never really gone through the graduate school application process, even more specifically medical school process. So I needed, I needed help. And, so, and what I did was I just read every single book that I could. I, I basically hustled. <laughs> I hustled my way in. And so And I've used that sort of hustle throughout my entire career to be very successful and get, you know, all of the jobs that I want, contract negotiations, things like that. And I started, when I looked back, I started to see a pattern and that there was an actual formula that I was using to convince people of, you know, my skills or that I was deserving of a particular position. And a lot of that boils down to something that I call storytelling psychology. And people love stories. Like that's why people love you, Rogers, because you're so <laughs> engaging and you tell stories and it's not just about like medical facts. You know what I mean? And when, and I've seen you teach students and it's, and it's case-based because that's what works because it's a story. And so that's what I teach my students in the future doctor formula. That's, I I teach them essentially storytelling psychology and how to apply it to the different pieces of their application so that they're able to stand out even if they have low scores. Because 
people with higher scores, they can get away with a mediocre personal statement. Yeah. But if you're, if you're like me and have a 32nd percentile MCAT, you can't get away with that. And you really need to be engaging and passionate and every, who you are as a person needs to come out on paper. And that's all storytelling. No. And you know, Rosie, you're, you're so humble in the way you say it. And because you do know that, you know, I teach, you know, medical students and Kaplan and all these things I just love doing, you know, my heart definitely goes out to a lot of people around the world who really desire to be, you know, doctors in the United States. And sometimes, you know, for a lot of reasons, they don't have, like you said, the score they want or, you know, are not competitive. And you provide motivation, which is, there are ways to do things and there is a formula behind it. And it's more than just using the broad word hustle like you did, you know, and it provides when people are depressed that they can't reach their goal, specifically talking about medicine, I think you provide that happiness. So let me ask you the next question, which is going to be, you know, in med school itself, this is going to be the what was some of your best memories of med school? You know, you finally got there. This is your dream. And what were some of the worst parts of med school that you're very happy it's done? Uh, the best part of med school was just knowing that I was going to make it. I was going to be a doctor because at that point, statistically speaking, I knew I would continue to graduate. I would continue on to a residency and a fellowship if I wanted to. And I, I distinctly remember this one particular morning where I had this recurring nightmare that I didn't get into medical school, that I had all the time in undergrad because the stress, you know, like high achievers, we put so much pressure on ourselves, but I woke up gasping, having this same recurring nightmare, but I woke up and I was in my apartment that was next to the medical school and I had anatomy class in like 30 minutes. Okay. And it was one of the best feelings ever because I was on my way. I was like ready to go and learn. And I just, I loved med school a lot because it was interesting science. I think the reason why I did so poorly in undergrad and I had a 2.9 science GPA is because no one cares about organic chemistry. Like that <laughs> stuff is boring. <laughs> so that was the best part. The worst part about medical school was I think the stress management and more specifically imposter syndrome. Oh, when I was okay. when I was applying for residency in my third and fourth year, it was that whole comparison game. There were so many other students that were saying that they had the inside scoop on who was going to get into this residency program. And it's all mm. about who you know, you know, that all of the myths and they just created all these <laughs> ideas. And I started comparing myself to them and thinking, oh, I'm not going to get into this. And it, I emotionally tortured myself because I believed that kind of BS that they were spewing. <laughs> right. You know, the, the gunners in med school will definitely do that to you if you're not careful. And so I ended up getting that residency and they didn't. That was, yeah, that was probably my first lesson in learning not to listen to what anyone else says, especially if it's a peer who is in the exact same position as you. It's not like they're in a position of power or like at a higher level. It's literally 
Why, like, why would some other med student have the inside scoop and I wouldn't? Like, you're, we're all med students. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think we all can relate to that. It's like, well, what is he or she know? What, what, I mean, did I not pay attention to something? No, I agree with you. So let me just ask, let me start going down to one of your favorite things, which is, you know, when in residency, you know, did you say, you know what, you know what my jam is? My jam is critical care. You know, what made you say I, you wanted to get more punishment? You finished a residency. That's admitted for many people. I got to tell you, that's enough. That's enough punishment. That's enough staffing cases and, and doing things. What was that desire? Can you explain it to me? Well, it started when I was a medical student and I had the most exciting, exhilarating IC rotation. But then when I was an intern, I did my ICU month and I was completely drained and exhausted and I got really scared. And okay. I thought, just like what you said, like, I don't know if I can continue on and do critical care. I'll be very happy as a hospitalist. Yeah. But then my senior year of residency, I watched other attendings give terrible news to loved ones in the most cold hearted way. And it bothered me so much to my core. And yeah. I knew that I would be able to do a better job. And I just felt compelled to do that because I knew I would bring much more empathy to it. And after, after, once I got to senior year, I was a little less burned out than intern year. And so I felt like, you know what, I can do another two years. And I sort of feel like I should because I'm good at it. And it's not just about the medical part of it. It's like the empathy and the passion and, you know, and you have that too. Like I've watched you interact with patients and it's just so warm and sweet because that's what people need at that time. Well, let me ask you this. You are the female doc, you know what I mean? And I think across the board that I wouldn't be lying that, you know, women in different medical fields, whether we're talking about ER or critical care or whatever it is, it's majority men in general. I think there's more men in medicine than women. So did this kind of drive you at that time, young in the female doc career to say, you know what? Critical care is historically dudes. I'm going to be super awesome show everyone up. Did that be a small part of it or not really? No, not, at, not really at the time because okay. I was just so focused on being the best doctor I could be and gaining those skills. Mm -hmm. But there was definitely a lot of implicit bias and, and, and just very covert sexism because I had told one of my attendings that I wanted to do a fellowship, a critical care fellowship. And he okay. told me not to because I needed to have a family and focus in on that. And, and how would I do that? Yes, it was terrible. It was that, awful. That, for guys, that's the kick in the balls right there. Like, are you serious? I can't believe that that was the advice. I, I, I feel bad. All right. Yeah. So for the critical care itself, for the, the students listening... Is there a part of you, I know I had a part of me that, were you very procedurally driven? Like, you're like, you know what, if there's a needle, I'm going to put it in the person's body. Is that still one of your favorite things to do as critical care is procedures? I do love procedures. I think it's a great balance between the surgical subspecialties and internal medicine, because as critical care doctors, we get to do such cool procedures. Um, I just did a bronchoscopy last week and I haven't done one in a very long time because it's just been COVID patients, but I had a trauma patient that um, I needed to take a look at the airway and it was so much fun. Yeah. I, had a, I had a blast. Yeah. Procedures are, are really fun for me. And I think it balances out a lot of art of medicine where a lot of it is, you know, diagnosing and treating 
creating those type of plans, but there's also this hands-on aspect that I really, really love. Well, you know what? Let me brag about you. You know, when you were here for your time, all the fellows loved one specific aspect about you. You were the great proceduralist. You were doing these bedside tricks. You know, I think I'm going to get in trouble already saying this, but you let me do a trick with you before. And I got to tell you, you're awesome. And it's just kind of like, you know, when me and you had a chance to do it, I know it was a day that all the fellows were busy and you just needed some help and you were being really nice to me. But it's just to see you just, hey, this is what you do, Raj, and here's how you place the head and this is what you do. And I'm like, oh, because, you know, you're just my, you're my cool buddy. And all of a sudden I'm like looking up to you. And I think that it is cool that you're great at procedures. You're definitely better than me at them. And I think that, you know, (laughs) for people listening to this, I think that there is a small part of critical care where if you enjoy that aspect to be hands-on, you know, look into it. Yeah. I know, I know that like, I've been also trying to increase my EVD skills you know, oh, can you, external can you, ventricular. Can you tell people what an EBD is? Yeah, it's an external <laughs> ventricular drain. It's okay. basically a brain drain, if you want to <laughs> call it that. But um, it helps you monitor intracranial pressures and things like that. And so that's another procedure that some intensivists can learn how to do as well. Have you done you one? Know, yet? Chance? Have you done one? I've done almost ten throughout my career, but never consistently in one universe or one hospital setting where. I was able to get full privileges. It was always proctored, just like I proctored you for the tracheotomy. So yeah, you definitely proctored yeah. me. And for yeah. the med students who want to go into critical care, look up EBD. It's it's a little barbaric. You know what I mean? There's landmarks <laughs> of, the, of the skull, and if you get to see what you know the female doc looks like, you can just steer up there and drilling the skull in there. But that's yeah. great. But you know, another thing that you like that we shared in passion was the ultrasound. You know, ultrasound is hot topic. So can you please kind of let, you know, let my audience know how did you kind of gravitate towards that? And how do you, on one hand, you want to put a tube in someone and the other one, you want to externally image the, the organs. How do you do, how do you like both things? I think ultrasound is so valuable because you get information in seconds, in seconds. Yeah. And when you learn how to do it yourself, I, so I just had a patient with a cardiac arrest last week. Um, Initial ejection fraction was 15 to 20%. But then I was able to echo them every day to figure out if it was just post-cardiac arrest, you know, depressed ejection fraction, or if it was truly that this person had underlying heart disease. And then I did two echoes on one day because the ejection fraction was still depressed. Then I added dobutamine, low dose dobutamine. And then I went back to see what the left ventricle was doing and it started squeezing better. So I knew that that was the, that was the money. That was the dose that I needed. I didn't need any higher. It's just so valuable for critical care physicians to know that because you get immediate information. So are you still doing a lot of teaching? I know when we were together, we did stuff for the residents. You know, I know you take it to an obscene level. You're doing things for the American College of Chest Physicians. Are you still that involved with it? Yeah, I'm super involved with the American College of Chest Physicians, but because of the pandemic, all the live learnings have been canceled. So it's mostly virtual learnings. Uh, With my Western University students, I actually did a virtual IC rotation for them. Yeah, so I I turned on the Zoom and they would just follow me around on IC rounds. (laughs) Yeah, I was cute. It was fun. I see you totally doing that. So let me ask you, because you are really good at ultrasound, do you have your little portable ultrasound machine that you have? But Some of my fellows have that. Do you, do you have one of those? 
Yeah, it's called a butterfly, and butterfly, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's super portable, and I think yeah. it's about two grand, so much more affordable than like thirteen thousand, twenty thousand dollar giant machines. I do not have one. I thought that would be your thing. You know what I mean? Okay, maybe I'm a little <laughs> bit more of a perfectionist when it comes to ultrasound, but the butterfly is a combined probe. So it combines a linear and a phased array probe. And so the so the linear probe is the flat, thin one that you use for vessels. So like yeah. whenever you're doing lines. Okay. And then the phased array probe is the echocardiogram probe mm-hmm. and the abdominal probe. And so they combine the two into one. So the face is sort of a mesh of the two and you don't get the best pictures, echocardiogram pictures. And okay. so I, I like most hospitals now have of just a full blown ultrasound. So I'll just yeah. wait and, and get that. Because I don't right. always need to whip it out of my pocket like a... Like. Well, you know, Rose, that, that was going to be my Christmas present for you because you bad mouth. <laughs> oh! <laughs> so, let, me, let me ask you this. I'm just like pulling questions out of nowhere. You know, with all the, the mentoring you do for all these students and pre-med students, are you encouraging both men and women to go into critical care? I mean, are you, are you a, yes. an advocate for that? Okay. Oh, t- absolutely. I love critical. It's so much fun. I love critical care so much. And I love that I skipped pulmonary. <laughs> <laughs> Raj, I know you did pulmonary. You also did sleep. So you're super subspecialized, but I just, I just never had a passion for it. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad I skipped it because a lot of people think, thought that I should do it. You know, everyone has an opinion on your career when it's like, okay, great. I didn't even ask you. Um, But they were saying like, oh, you're going to get burned out. But I know the way that I work and working in a clinic burns me out. Yeah, Working in an ICU lights me up. So yeah. So I, I, I think critical care is amazing. And yeah. anytime, anytime someone goes into emergency medicine, I feel like I failed. Like I got them this close to, to fully going into critical care. But well, well, let me let me defend you a little bit because you know I think when you pick one field, I think that it shows that you have that deep desired passion. Not to say I don't, but I definitely feel torn in different ways, and I definitely feel as life goes on and you get older. To be that in depth, like you were just out of your training in all three different fields, it's hard. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I just took my research for uh, critical care uh, in November. I passed it. Yay, Raj. Yay. When you're diving into it, it's just kind of, you miss, you know, the feel of really enjoying one thing all the way down. So I mm-hmm. think, that, uh, I think it's great that you know what you want. And I think it's great that you promote it that way because you know that if you only do critical care, that is your desire. I like it. Um, so let me ask you this. I have, I, this is one of my favorite questions. So how do you know so much about social media? And how, how are you just so good? Because when I first met you, everyone, the reason why I wanted to ask this is because, uh, you know, we're both on the same stuff, Instagram. And I was kind of almost going to brag to Rosie. I have my, my 1,000 followers on Instagram. And I was very proud of that. And then she really uh, showed me up with her I don't know how many K's you have next to your followers. And <laughs> is it just because it's fun to do or did you take a class and it really blew you up to be an influencer, you know? How did you yeah. Do? So my whole journey into social media marketing really started because I was completely burned out after fellowship and I actually didn't want to be a doctor anymore. Oh, okay. yeah. It came from a dark place. <laughs> that's, that's bad. <laughs> no, and so what I thought about was what did I love doing 
back uh, in high school and I loved coding and creating websites and blogs and things like that. And then eventually my job was great because I wasn't doing night shifts and I relearned my passion for medicine. And then I wanted to mesh the two. So I started this blog for women in medicine. And then in order to promote it, I knew that social media marketing was the next thing. So I started taking little classes here and there, like free workshops that I would come across um, from people on Twitter. And then from there, it just kind of continued to build and I sort of figured out certain algorithms on Instagram and hashtags to use and what pictures people responded to more. And then from there, it just continued to grow. And you're damn good at it. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Thank you. I remember when you saw my post like, Raj, I don't want to offend you, but did you think about doing this and doing yeah. that? Yeah, you kept doing all the wrong captions and I kept <laughs> finding you in the hallways and like, Raj, um, you really need to change this caption. <laughs> um, but, you know, now I really want to ask, you know, uh, some really important questions. They're all important, but when did you start realizing you wanted to be an advocate for just women in general? You mean you are the female doc? I think that I read a lot of your blogs and your passions. When did that become a priority? That was in 2013 when I finished fellowship. Okay. I read Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. And whether you like that book or not, because it's a little bit controversial, a lot of people criticized it saying that, oh, it's so easy for her to tell women to dive deep into their careers and be a go-getter because she comes from a privileged background, no financial stress. She's also a white woman. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of backlash with that book, but I thought it was very well done. But I think the more important thing was that she blew the lid off of sexism in Silicon Valley. Okay. And when she did that, I saw so many parallels into the medical world. And I decided that I wanted to, do, wanted to be able to do that in the medical field. So that's why I, I was like, we're going to, and, and, you know, and I've gotten, like I said, that, that one attending, he was actually the chair of the department of medicine. Ooh who told me to not do a critical care fellowship. I mean, that's awful No, for a young woman trying to explore her career. Yeah. That's not, that's not fair. And, you know, and going back and earlier, we're talking about, you know, what motivated you to go to med school. And I was going to make a little joke about counselors, you know, and (laughs) you always assume the counselor should be the most positive person. Like even though you can do it. And the fact that, you made this joke like the counselor's like, no, nah, dude, you're out. Don't do it. I'm yeah. Like, it used to go against the definition of what a counselor should do. Right. And it's all majority of my pre-med students tell me that mm-hmm. their pre-med advisor also told them like, mm, you need to pick a different career. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's bad, man. Yeah. And I guess, I guess that's the thing is that throughout your entire life, you're always going to come across people in different roles that will tell you, you can't do something. But it's up to you to decide whether you can do it or not. No one else can tell you that. And and I will say we do share this motto together, I think, which is, you know, happiness is something that people can't provide for you. You got to make yourself happy. Yeah. But I, you know, I got, so now I got some really good questions. I know you know the answer for them, but I was, I want to know the answer. So the first question you, and you address these in other podcasts and blogs that you have is the DO versus MD 
myth busting. And so you to comment, there are three common myths that are out there. And so I want to let everyone know that my wife, her name's Michelle. She's the most beautiful, nicest person in the whole world. She is also a DO. And I just wanted to say that, but I wanted to ask you the question, what are the three myths out there that are, that you were talking about? Can you share with my audience? Sure. Yeah. I did a whole podcast episode on this. Um, because I think it's really important and it's a common question I get. I didn't know Michelle was a Dio. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. I don't think, yeah, I don't think go I remember Nikon. that. Go Nikon. <laughs> yeah, go Nikon. Um, so one thing is salary. Uh, osteopathic, a lot of people believe that osteopathic physicians get paid less because they're quote unquote, um, like less than doctors. And that's absolutely incorrect. You know, we get paid exactly the same as our, as our colleagues, MD and DO colleagues. Another myth is that you can't fully practice in the United States and you're not really a licensed physician or you're not a real doctor. And that's absolutely incorrect in the United States. There's two different licensed physicians Yes. And that's MDs and DOs. So you can do any subspecialty you want. You can be a neurosurgeon. You can be a family yeah. practitioner. You can be mm -hmm. a critical care doctor. You can be a rheumatologist, you know? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you can do whatever you want. And um, what is okay. the third one? <laughs> I mean, I mean I, you, your, your line was a three common myths, but I will, while you're thinking, let me just say two things. As far as the pay is concerned, I mean, my wife is just really smart. Yeah, she makes more money than I do. I'm not ashamed to say it out loud on my podcast, you know, so I, that is 100% true. And as far as a license concern, and, and Rosie, you can speak to this, poor Michelle has to go, it's even worse to, to get that license renewal, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. As an osteopath, oh, yeah. there's so much documentation. There are three times as strict oh, I feel so bad for her every year she has to do it, you know? But, but I mean, you're definitely right. There are definitely two licensed things and you can do whatever you want. You said neurology and everything. One of my favorite people in the whole world is Dr. Ben Emanuel. I work with him quite a bit. You know who that is? Oh, I love that. And he is DO Supreme and he's one of the smartest dudes I know around town. So I love everything. He's about super him. smart. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. <laughs> now, there is also another great... I think it was a podcast that you did with a great question and you don't have to list all 10 of them, but it was called the top 10 things you learned as a woman in medicine. And I'm not going to list out all 10 because that's kind of mean and they should go to check out your podcast and do it. But can you give me some of the highlights? Like, can you give me the, 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 the metal stand, like the top three, what are going to be some of the top things you learned as a woman in medicine? One of them is to learn to say no. And to understand your market value. Yeah, that one's huge. So I started this motto. Yeah. Yeah, this, my motto is that I don't work for free. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> and even, and you think about, there's a lot of unpaid physician positions. So mm -hmm. like the being chair at a hospital committee, that's okay. not a paid position. You don't get paid extra. But there is an energy exchange where you get, you, f you feel that you're making an impact on the hospital by helping shape certain hospital policies. And that's why you lead this committee. Mm -hmm. However, if you're put into certain projects that don't give you anything to put on your resume and you're not getting fulfilled from it, then essentially you're working for free. And that is true. Yeah, that's that's a big no-no. <laughs> and isn't this is something that, you know, for those who are in 
residency programs. They want to be in academics. You know, I mean, that's something you have to be familiar with because yeah, you know, not just speaking about USC. Anyone out there, you know, when you get these magical titles, it usually doesn't come with money. You know, it does not. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, and I think I think that's one of the reasons why I left academic medicine is because I felt like um, there was no longer that energy exchange that worked for me anymore. Yep. Yeah. I'm still upset you left because <laughs> one of the things you launch with and pal around with. But um, give me another one. What's another thing you learned as a woman in medicine? Yeah, I learned that some women in leadership positions are not always going to be nurturing or your mentors, and that's okay. All right, expand. So I uh, there's something called Queen Bee Syndrome that some female leaders have adapted to basically survive their own career in a male-dominated field. And so yeah. what they'll do is they'll adopt hyper-masculine, like machismo type of traits All right. in order to get their leadership position. And once they're in that leadership position, then they try to keep other worker bees down. And those other worker bees would be other female employees. And so they're not helpful. And it's, it makes me angry, but it's also something that I am now okay with because I do look at my female colleagues and I do place expectations on them to be more nurturing and mentoring to me. And they may not always have that time because they're busy doing other things. And so you have to look at it from both perspectives of yourself. Am I placing too many expectations on this female leader? And is she suffering from queen bee syndrome where she's not going to be in a position or have the capacity to even want to mentor me? And so it's, it's, it's just about sort of recognizing those. I don't think there's a solution per se, but it's just a matter of recognition and then finding other mentors who would be like a male ally. You know, several of uh, pretty much my entire critical care career has been comprised of male mentors. And like they're definitely out there, but I think sometimes there's a little bit of a side eye going on when a woman doesn't help you out. You know, and to kind of kind of coattail on that story, there is another <laughs> amazing doctor. Her name is Dr. Hala Sabre. She started the, uh, the women's Facebook group, you know, the, the, the women's physician Facebook group. She's just an amazing person. And she told me a story that, you know, when she was going through her training, you know, when you're trying to fight for a residency spot or a fellowship spot, there'll be all dudes there and only maybe one or two women. And it seems that the women will actually be not competing with everyone else, but between themselves because of the fact that there's, it was so biased to what genders are going to be interviewing for a certain position. So it almost seems like it's a setup to this queen bee syndrome because you're so used to competing against yourself. And it's mm-hmm. actually, you know, the way Hall explained the story, which was much better to me, Dr. Sabre is that, you know, you eventually learn that you don't want to have to compete against the other women in there. You want to help them, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's just very interesting hearing two sides or a continuation of the story. Yeah. So, so this kind of leads into, uh, I got these great questions. So you had a, a blog or a podcast about women versus women in medicine, you know, and I think mm-hmm. this kind of led to this, you know, and I wanted to kind of expand on some of your stories. And the reason why I'm asking this is because my wife told me a story the other day. This is 
off the press. You know, in work nowadays with COVID, you don't go around meeting a lot of people. And so she really wanted to meet one of the people at her work, who's another doctor. And went up there just to have conversation. Of course, the common thing was a shared patient. And went up there, hey, and, you know, big smile. And the other doctor was kind of rude, kind of mean. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just kind of left a bad taste in her mouth. And, and it was just kind of funny where I just like, why, why can't people just smile and be happy? And, you know, and we did mention, is it, especially because they're both women. So what is, what is your take on that? And what did you mean when your blog about, what did you learn about women versus women in medicine? Yeah, it was a podcast episode that I had with one of my dear friends, Dr. Sharice Slathan. And I don't know if you remember her. She was the neuro PT in our um, seven South unit. Remember oh. she left? Yeah, she left to go Ooh. to DC. Yes. Yeah, Sharice, you remember her? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Keep on going, keep on going. I didn't know that. Yeah, so, so we had this whole conversation and we also specifically dove into how sometimes it's women of color mm-hmm. because as a black woman, she experienced in physical therapy school that the black women in her class expected her to consistently study with them. Oh, okay. But she vibed with some other white women in her class and, um, and she faced some backlash because of that, because I think there's also some loyalty when it comes to certain cultures, right? You know, you know that I know that we, we see it and we try to help each other out, but it's not that we're not so ingrained in it that it becomes the priority. And so, you know, everyone's different and everyone views this sort of sisterhood or kinship in a different way, depending on how they were raised or depending on what their household was like. And it's just sort of trying to navigate that to be able to now lift ourselves up and lift other women up. And so we just kind of dissected out like all the different layers of gender and race and discrimination that goes on in the workplace. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm definitely giving you some tough questions. So this one is going <laughs> uh, to help me out a little bit and help many people out. You had, I think, once again, a topic you talked about was uh, negotiating, negotiation. Mm-hmm. And I think I would almost want to hear some good tips for myself. I think I'm a very poor negotiator, which is why my, my, my wife makes more money than me and most people do. <laughs> you know? So um, what are going to be some, some tips? And, and I'm going to say for both men and women, you know what I mean? Because yes. I think we benefit from it. When it's time to get a contract, whether it be the first time or getting a new job, I'll let you kind of play with how you want to take it. But what are some good negotiation tips? Okay. So tip number one, never accept the first offer. All right. Yeah. <laughs> you always, even if you think it's a fair market value offer, always ask for more. Okay. Just because HR departments, people expect you, people to negotiate. Okay. And usually they'll lowball the first offer because they know, oh, okay, they're probably going to ask for more. So there's this sort of back and forth, and that's that's common. Like we see that all the time in swap meets and you know different things like that. So there's always a back and forth. Okay. The second tip is figure out what what you actually want. So it's, like you mentioned in academic medicine, there's not always a budget that you can negotiate because there's a fixed salary or it's a, you know, it, that, that stuff is fixed, but figure out what else you want. Do you want a research assistant? 
Do you want more CME money? Do you want more vacation days? How much clinical time? Uh, Do you want to expand your education budget so you can get some more ultrasound tools for your fellows? You know, you have to, there's other ways that you can still negotiate. So prioritize what it is exactly that you want. Like no night shifts, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I negotiated no night shifts in my first job out of fellowship and it was the best thing I ever did. So right now, are you doing night shift or no night shift? No, I did night shifts just because you know, there was an ICU shortage. And so I was, yeah. I was flying around to, to hospitals all the time. And so I, I covered some night shifts, but I don't function well on night shifts. Yeah. I don't think it's good for patient care. I don't think it's good for me. And I, because I'm such a high high level daytime intensivists and I have so many procedural skills, I'm much more valuable on a day shift. No. And and I think that's a huge thing in general, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. if you haven't done nights in a while, and I'll be honest with you, I did a couple of nights here and there that uh, if you don't do it consistently, it takes a toll on you and you don't realize how hard it is as you get older. And I think that is such a key thing that, you know, many people going into a contract for whatever it is, it's always just dollar amount. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there are many, many things out there that are just as important. And I think that's a really good thing you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So, so we got uh, always thinking about other things besides a dollar amount. Yeah. Always turn down the first offer. You know what I yes. mean? Yes. Can I, can I irk you to give me a couple more? I mean, sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, well, this one's specifically for women. Okay. And <laughs> all right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, because people expect women to be more nurturing and more community-oriented, group-oriented, it can feel a little bit uncomfortable for someone to ask for more money or talk about their own accomplishments to be able to, to justify, hey, I need a raise. And so there's a, a psychologist who kind of describes um, this type of phrasing to say that instead of, I had a really good year to use more communal words like we had a really good year. And so when you when you make it about the company doing really well and you're part of that team, then it can soften okay. asking for some some like a raise or whatever it is that you're looking for. I personally don't like that technique. Yeah. And I and I don't use it because I want them to understand clearly that it was me that made the impact and it wasn't, you know, a team effort. But I do know that some women get a little bit nervous. Of course. Yeah. So that, that you, can, you can sort of initially start with some of that phrasing. And then an, the last tip I'll give is to practice. I love practicing at swap meets. like just even simple things like that because I also I get very uncomfortable at swap meets or at least I used to because I also felt a little bit awkward like I could definitely you know I could definitely afford that ten dollar you know Thailand elephant pant or whatever it is that I'm trying to negotiate like yeah like I don't need to negotiate but it's just the sake of practicing that type of skill and saying like okay I'll give you five yeah, And then they'll probably come back and say, no, you know, um, the least I can do is eight. And then n- normally I'll stop there. But if you want to keep practicing to mm-hmm. keep going, be like, no, how about 750 or, you know, like yeah. just something. And then you, yeah. and then what you start to do is you start to learn patterns yeah. of when someone is sweating and okay. when they're not. 
Ah, okay. And it kind of it kind of allows you to read people a little bit better, uh, so that you know when you're when you're pushing too much, okay. when you need to stop a little bit, and then when you know that they're desperate, <laughs> and that you can and you can try to take advantage of that. So let me ask you a favor. Um, if when it's my time to go shopping for a new car, are you going to come with me? Because my wife and I went to go just kind of feel the market a little bit. I really suck at negotiating, dude. Yeah. Not easy. No. Oh, I had a colleague tell me once he wore his scrubs to the car dealership and he had done all of his research online. He okay. knew exactly what features he wanted and he knew yep. exactly what amount of money he need, he wanted to pay. Okay. So he walked in and he said, I'm on my break. I got an, a surgery in 10 minutes that I got to get back to the hospital for. Mm -hmm. This is what I want. Are you able to give it to me? And if they said no, then he was like, okay, well, I got to go to my surgery anyway, and then would walk away. So I'm very curious to see if that would work for you. You show up in your scrubs and say, I have a bronchoscopy procedure for a very critical patient in 20 minutes. This is what, and you do all the background research from the safety of your own home and your laptop. Oh my God. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you, so this is a true story. So, Mina, I mean, you're younger than me. Do you remember a show called The Cosby Show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was one episode on The Cosby Show where Bill Cosby was going to buy the car. Yeah, a car. And he told his family the trick to getting the car is you got to look really poor. So even though in The Cosby Show, I think he was a doctor. He was an OB-GYN doctor or something. He dressed up all like he, you know, just average. And then he went to the car dealership. And he got the deal he wanted because he was poor or whatever. And right when they're about to sign the paperwork, one of the customers comes and is like, hey, Dr. Huxtable. And then the, the deal got cut off. So the whole reason I'm telling you this is that when we went to the shop, I told my wife, like, yeah, we got to dress poor. That's the move. Mm, yeah, there's that. That's another strategy. I think that's the fun part about negotiation is there's so yeah. many different strategies because you're right. If you show up as a doctor, you're also Absolutely. revealing some of your playing cards where yeah. you make money. But then if you if you use the doctor card yeah. as you have a scarcity of time and you need to make this deal in the next 10 minutes, then it can work for you. But I like what you're saying is like, maybe you should hide the doctor piece the doctor. because then they're going to think you have all this money. But then if you're a bad negotiator and you can't yeah. get that price down anyways, then <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so there's so many different ways that you can do it. And it's, that's why practice is so important. Or you wear the USC sign. You're like, Oh, USC, you probably don't have any money. <laughs> Yeah, it all went to your tuition and it's all in student loans. <laughs> but, um, all right, so this is going to be one of, well, I have a, only a couple more questions left, but this one is uh, because I really wanted to know that I think that what you represent for women is just amazing, you know, and I really love this question because we are critical care and you had a topic called how to survive the boys club. Mm. And I, this question is obviously geared to many of the women who listen to my podcast, med students, residents, you know, how do you survive? The, how did you survive me and some of the colleagues here? And, <laughs> you know, can you give some tips for the women out there? Yeah. No, it was easy to survive with you because you were, oh. yeah, you were so much fun to work with. <laughs> um, but surviving the boys club, my biggest, biggest tip is just awareness. 
Okay. Awareness of the statistics and research that has been done on the different ways that women in medicine are treated. So, for example, there was a study in 2016 that showed academic research-based female physicians spend eight and a half hours more per week on household responsibilities than their male counterparts. That's an entire day. So just that entire day of, of work, having one less than your male colleagues is going to set you back career-wise because you're not going to be able to accomplish as much. Um, that study also showed that most female physicians are in dual-income households whereas only 44% of the men were in dual income households. So they had someone at home that was helping them out. Right. And, and just, you know, stay at home wife or stay at home mom. And that, and that makes their, their work life a little bit easier too. So in order to survive the boys club, you just got to know the different ways that you will be treated differently so that you can prepare yourself for that. And Obviously, this is a systemic issue. The system needs to be fixed to be more equitable to different genders, different races, different sexualities. There's still a lot of implicit bias. It's still a a very patriarchal, broken system. But take the steps that you can to be able to set your boundaries and be able to figure out what it is that you need. And even like just knowing that statistic I'm able to date a little bit smarter. I'm able to find a supportive partner, like the way that you're an incredibly supportive partner to Michelle, right? You want to find someone that's not going to maybe put some of those household burdens on you that that also understands that women statistically end up taking the brunt of the household responsibilities yeah. and, and is ready to help make that equal. You know, so it is, it's like figure out what exactly it is that you want and just knowing what happens on a daily basis in the workplace, household, and then figure and then cr- crafting your life around that while the system is slowly being fixed with, you know, yeah. Some of the changes, the positive changes that we've been seeing over the last several years. But I think I think awareness is so key because the only reason why I negotiated my first job contract when I finished fellowship is because I saw a study that was done out of Carnegie Mellon for MBA students that showed 57% of the men negotiated their first job out of their MBA and only 7% of women negotiated their first job contract when they finished their MBA. And I thought, oh my God, what are the women in medicine even doing? And I think in general, I I don't think there's as big of a gender difference because I think in medicine, we're all taught that we're minions (laughs) from a very early age (laughs) and that we don't deserve any money and that we're greedy if we ask for more money. But uh, that's the only reason why I asked yeah. Um, and I, and I got an extra 25 grand. Wow. I know. Uh, it was, yeah. it was wild. <laughs> 25 grand just for asking. No. And um, I think that's the take home message. And part of it in one layer is what, what is the harm in asking, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But You know, I ask you this question because, you know, I came across a study that during this pandemic, because more women are actually, you know, stopping their job or putting their careers on hold because mm-hmm. you got to take care of the kids at home, you know, and I look mm-hmm. at my wife and I do tear up, you know what I mean? Because she does all the zoom schools with our kids. A lot of stuff really falls in her plate, not because I don't want to help. It just does. And she is the same hardworking doctor I am. So when I hear other women are 
actually, you know, sacrificing their dreams. I'm like, dude, you know, that sucks. And that's why I think that right. was a question because right. Right, it's not like men like me are raising my hand. Like, Hey, I'm cool, dude. I'm I'll, I'll stop my career. And that's definitely one of those things where it's the system and it's the, the way, yeah. you know, and, and like, kind of like you mentioned, you know, Michelle's been doing the zoom and stuff, but I guess in certain households, it's like, I just want people to ask, is that something that you want to do? Is that responsibility that you love doing? Because if you love doing it, cool, do it. But if you're, if, if it's being forced on you, that's completely different. Yes. You know, like I, I, a lot of people have, feel like I'm the good husband again. Yay. No, I mean, <laughs> okay. you know, like you, you guys do what works for you and yes. balance that out in yeah. your own relationship. And no yeah. one should be able to tell you like, you know, and I think that was part of the backlash of that book lean in is yeah. she, she was preaching for women to continue to push into their careers. Whereas like, well, maybe some women didn't want to push into their careers. So it's just, it's, it's more a balance of figuring out what it is that you want, figuring out what options you have, and then building your life around that. No, well said. Well said for the closure on that. So yeah. last things and like, I knew we were going to go over because it's already been an hour and I just love talking to you so much. You know, the last thing is right now, you're really passionate about, you know, teaching the pre-med students and everything like that. Is there anything you just want to say in general about gathering people to go to your site to get that mentoring? Is this, is this your main thing right now? Because you're in, your hands are in many different things, you know, but is this the main passion right now? Yeah, this is definitely my passion project, uh, the future doctor formula. And it's for pre-med students who didn't do the best got lower scores and it's because they come from non-traditional backgrounds. I have moms in my group. I have a lot of black and Latina women. I have a lot of even immigrant women who aren't U.S. citizens. And so everyone has this different path where they may or may not have had certain support systems at home to allow them to apply to higher education into medical school with ease. And so that's what I really help provide. And it's a year-long program. We have weekly live Q&As where I help with essay editing and you learn all about storytelling psychology and you pull that through all the way through interviews. Like it's just, it's from start to finish. I work with you throughout the entire process and there's just an amazing community of women who are helping each other. Um, There's also some men in the program too, and it's mostly men of color or um, LGBTQ community members. So it's, it's just such a cool eclectic group of really supportive and positive people which is very rare to find in the pre-med world because it's also yes. very competitive, right? Yeah. So it's just such a cool space. And I'm so proud of the, the students and the community that we have. Um, so if you guys are interested in that, just visit thefemaledoc.com. And you can, there's so many different resources on there for pre-meds. I have a free masterclass where I teach the three most common mistakes that pre-med students make and how to avoid them. And it's completely free. And that's how you can start to see if maybe you think that I would be a good fit for you as a mentor throughout this process. So it's like a little taste. I also have um, my podcast. So you can also go to thefemaledoc.com and um, I'm on every single streaming service and you can also find me that way. Of course, Instagram, the female doc. <laughs> and um, I love interacting with people and hearing their stories and their struggles. One of the more popular 
female, the female doc podcast episodes are about, I have this column that's called Dear Female Doc. And people mm-hmm. will ask me their career questions or discrimination questions that happen in the workplace. And then I kind of help them through it, kind of like a Dear Abby, but it's Dear <laughs> Female Doc. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, I'll tell you this much. I, I will do the closing. You know, Rosie, I mean, it's not, and you have to practice for this. This is like me talking to you. And I just want everyone to know out there that I think you're one of the most well-rounded people. There's no script. I'm just saying this. You know, you have this huge heart. I always look up to you. I think you're, as a critical care doctor, your skills with the patient, procedures, you know, you make me laugh. You're still good with social media. And I really do encourage everyone to go to the female doc websites and Instagrams. And it's been such a treat to have you here. And you are such a great role model, Rosie. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. I'm so proud of you and your your media expansion. I watch you on the news all the time and you're so eloquent and I'm so happy you started this podcast and you're continuing to expand because I think people need to hear from you. You know, people people need that message from you. All right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the door a little bit open. If, uh, you know, I, I need my buddy to come back here, my bestie, would you do another podcast down the line? Oh, for sure. For All sure. Right. Of That's what I wanted to hear. That's what I wanted to hear. All right, everyone. Thank you, Rosie, for coming today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.